Hey guys, thanks for joining us today and listening to Bodies in the Bayous. This is season one, episode three. I'm Morgan. And I'm Gretchen. So we do have some follow-up questions from our audience. Um, first one is coming from Jesus out of League City. So what did Jesus have to say, Gretchen? Jesus asked what the race of the um, girls that we covered in the last couple of episodes were. Morgan, what was the race? So Colette Wilson was white and Gloria Gonzalez was Hispanic. Adele Crabtree was white and so was Linda Sutherland. And what do we know about Pamela Hubner? Pamela Hubner, I think, was white as well, but I also believe that Karen had a few questions about her. What did Karen want to know? So Karen asked us why Pamela Hubner's husband didn't have any information about her. Wanted to know why Pamela Hubner's husband didn't know her birth date, her main name, anything like that. And I think that it's not that Pamela Hubner's husband didn't know that. I think what has been lost is that anything on the missing persons case for Pamela Hubner has been lost. And so we don't know any information about her other than that um, Harry Lanham confessed to killing her. Right. And I know when we were just kind of going over our notes before we decided to record today, um, we were discussing, you know, why the date of birth isn't in there, where she came from. And I guess that's something we're going to try to get through the open records, if it's possible. It... It could be there. We just don't know. Our hope is that because Harry Lanham is deceased, that the case for Pamela Hubner would be closed and that maybe we could get some missing records. But my guess is that they're just not available to us at this time because they don't exist. Right. I think that that if law enforcement knew any more, they would be sharing that with the Charlie Project in order to try to make a connection to any remains that are out there that might possibly match to her. And Karen, we certainly appreciate your um, question there. At the end of our last episode that we recorded, uh, we did you know, ask for the public's help on that one. So hopefully we'll get some results. Yeah, I mean, we'll just put it back out there as a plea. Anybody knowing anything about Pamela Hubner, any members of the Hubner family who might have any connection to a Larry or a Lawrence, um, can we contact law enforcement? Contact us on our Facebook page. We'll put you in touch with the right law enforcement agencies. Contact the Charlie Project. Anything that can be done to solve this case. Thank you, Karen. So, Jesus, not to go back because I know you had a few questions there. Um, I know that you wanted us to easily explain how all four girls were connected again. Because I know when you Google search, all four of them don't come up together. So that can be a little bit confusing. So we'll just reiterate that for you. Um. So it's not easy to connect all four of these girls together, but the best that I can do is Colette Wilson and Gloria Gonzalez's remains are found 
together within 30 yards of each other and to the point that actually their remains are intermixed a little bit. So that connects the two of them. Adele Crabtree, Linda Sutherland, and Pamela Hubner. It's because Harry Lanham and Anthony Napa confessed to the killings involved in those. And during Harry Lanham's confession, he led police to believe that he was also involved in the abduction and killing of Colette Wilson and the abduction and killing of Gloria Gonzalez. Timing-wise, it's possible that Harry Lanham abducted Colette Wilson without Anthony Napa and that he also killed Pamela, Pamela Hubner without Anthony Napa. And then that he killed Adele Crabtree and Linda Sutherland with Anthony Napa. There's, I speculate that probably the two of them were involved in the killing of Gloria Gonzalez together, but it's, it's hard to say since we do not have actual written confessions by either of them. We're only getting small bits of information on old newspaper records, old uh, websites and different things that we can pull up. We don't have like detailed open records. We have applied for some of those open records. Um, we applied for them in one county and have been um, put through to a different uh, police precinct. So we're hoping that that eventually we'll be able to answer that question in a little bit more detail. But I don't think that for us, just because there's this possible connection between these two suspects, that Gloria Gonzalez and Colette Wilson's case are closed. They're they're going to come up later on as we talk about other suspects who confess to other killings and bring in Colette Wilson and Gloria Gonzalez. So it's not in any way us saying this is a sure thing that Harry Lanham and Anthony Napa killed these two or killed one of them. It's just that we think it's important for the discussion that they are out there and they're talked about as possible suspects in this case. Right, and I think another question that Jesus had mentioned was, were they convicted? Harry, Henry, Henry Lanham and Anthony Napa were convicted in the killing of Linda Sutherland. Right. But other than that, once Harry Lanham was shot and killed, all the other cases against Napa were dropped. And then because of course he's not alive, no other cases were brought against him. And so we really don't have the answer to, you know, what type of evidence was against him unless we can get any open records request. Right, so because Lanham was killed before this happened, is that why he wasn't convicted, you think? Or, I mean, what is, what are your thoughts on that? Well, we can never tell what a jury would have done. We, right. you know, we don't know how strong the evidence was. We, we're not real sure 
without an open records request whether or not there was a grand jury indictment on his him or if they had just brought a case against him and were planning to go to the grand jury so i think you know we still have a lot of questions there mm -hmm. and we also did have a question from andy j about gloria and he wanted to know what was the difference between a bookkeeper or a general store clerk or are they one and the same were you able to kind of track that out a little bit well gloria gonzalez worked at kroger and from talking to fellow kroger employees you are a clerk doing the job of a bookkeeper so it's kind of like you start off as a clerk you train as a bookkeeper but you're still a clerk a grocery store clerk is the way that that set up what they did say is they don't know exactly how it was set up in 1971 but that's how it is set up today and so since she was working for kroger we're assuming that she was a bookkeeper for kroger still working as a clerk right so that kind of makes sense so if somebody was to ask her family what does she do at Kroger? She might say, I'm a bookkeeper, right? Or she's a bookkeeper. And, but when you call Kroger, their official terms might be a little bit different and say she was a clerk. She was a clerk, yeah. <clears throat> okay, okay. And we did have um, an anonymous question about why didn't the band leader stay and wait for Colette's mom when he did drop her off? Um, the information that I found out about that question is that he actually was dropping off more than just Colette. So um, the way that this would work is that he would pick up several other students, drive them with him, and then as he would come back, he would drop them off. So if you're thinking about Colette's mom not being there, if he stops and stays and waits at every single location where he's dropping off a person, by the time he gets to the last kid he could be an hour late, you know, getting to that last, dropping off that last kid and somebody could have been waiting for a really long time at that point. So I think, you know, and we're talking about the, the 70s, you know, it's very normal for you to be able to drop kids off and for them to walk home and, you know, be safe. Absolutely. I mean, I just know even when I was a little kid, we'd have this one lady in the neighborhood that would come by and give us 50 cents for an ice cream at school. You didn't think anything of it, but nowadays you might, right? So I guess that comes into play there sometimes too when you think, why would you let your kid, you know, take a ride like that? But that's very normal. People are very trusting. And, you know, he was an official at the school and they trusted him, you know? And if you have many other students that you're doing that with, you can't wait 30 minutes here, 30 minutes to the next stop, 30 minutes, you know, then. Well, I think the other thing is, you know, again, we live in this cell phone era. Right. You know, if he's running a few minutes late, waiting for Colette's mom, the other kids can text nowadays to the other parents and say, hey, we're running a few minutes late, you know, be there in a few minutes. But back then, you didn't have that ability. Right. So you kind of had to follow that timeline of, drop Colette off at 12.30, drop the next child off at 12.35, and the next child off at, at uh, 12.40, you know, to keep everybody in the same kind of consistent timeline. Right. Okay. And then I think that does go into, you know, we had some people who asked us, 
you know, why wasn't he a suspect? Well, if he's got several other children that he's dropping off along the way, then you know where he was at the time. Mm -hmm. And they would know whether or not Colette was in that car that day. It'd be interesting to know, like, what stop she might have been. You know, if she was, like, middle of the pack, first of the pack, end of the pack. You know, that's something we may not know, but that would be interesting if we could find that out. Yeah, it's not something that I've come across. Mm -hmm. Thank you, listeners, for the questions. And as always, we are happy to answer them. You can find us at our Facebook page, Bodies in the Bayous. Or you can always email us at bodiesinbayous at hotmail.com. With that out of the way, Gretchen, let's continue on with our episode. Today we are going to start with Brenda Jones. You want to um, start with her story, Gretchen? Yeah, so I think just to give you an idea of where this lays in the timeline, Colette Wilson goes missing on uh, June 7th, 1971. Brenda Jones goes missing on July 1st, 1971. So Brenda Jones was a happy 14-year-old girl who attended middle school at Holy Rosary Catholic School. Holy Rosary Catholic School was the first African-American Catholic school in the state of Texas. On July 1st, 1971, Brenda went to church with her family. She taught Sunday school to the younger children. And after church was over, she asked her mother if she could go visit with an aunt who was in the hospital. Her aunt had broken her leg. So Brenda's mom gave her money to get on the bus and it was the city bus, get on the bus and go to the Galveston hospital and visit her aunt. Brenda arrived at the hospital, spent about an hour with her aunt and then got back on the bus and the bus driver remembered seeing Brenda that day. He said that he dropped her off on Avenue 1 and 31st Street, and he saw her walking toward her apartment. Brenda lived at the Terrace Apartments. They were public housing in Galveston in the 1970s. So she was last seen walking toward her apartment. In later interviews that her sister gave, her sister said that Friends that had seen her that day had talked to Brenda and Brenda had told them that she was going to go grab her sister a Coke and then head home. And so she went off in the direction of a store that was nearby. Her family reported her missing later on that evening to police, but police believed that she had simply run away. Her family did not believe that she would run away. She was very close with her mother and her older siblings. She was excited about a brand new baby nephew that um, her sister had had. So there was no reason or any indication of anything going on at home that would make anybody think that Brenda Jones would run away. It was the very next day that workers uh, painting the Pelican Island Bridge, a bridge that spans over the Galveston Bay, connecting Galveston Island to Pelican Island, that they saw something in the water. They actually began watching it and kind of talking about what they thought it was in the water. And it was when the surf brought it closer that they were horrified to realize that it was a dead body. 
they called police and when police got her out of the water she was nude her hands and feet tied with lacings from her shoes and they brought her into the medical examiner's office and the medical examiner <coughs> I'm I'm sorry Texas is terrible for the allergies and so I'm having a little <laughs> little trouble with cracking my voice but Sorry about that. So they brought her into the medical examiner's office and the medical examiner noticed that something was in her mouth. And when he removed it, he noticed that it was a slip. The slip was later identified as belonging to Brenda. And when police went searching the shorelines, they did actually notice uh, her shoes on the uh, beach near where her body was discovered out in the bay. Her manner of death was determined to be strangulation, and it was also determined that she had been sexually assaulted. It was later in 2017 that the case was re-looked at. DNA was found on the laces that had been cut off her shoes and that she had been tied up with and strangled with. The DNA was so small the only thing that it would tell us was that there was male DNA on her shoes. It would not give us any more information. Right, because the sample was too small to really test that. Yeah, <clears throat> so you can't tell whether or not this sample was from a Caucasian, Hispanic, or um, African-American individual. Right, and one other thing I did um, ask you about was at the time that they retested the shoelaces, in 2017 why was the slip maybe not retested or would there be a reason they wouldn't retest it um since they were already doing the shoelaces i think there would be a variety of reasons that they would test the shoelaces one reason is that thinking that the shoelaces would be something that because you would physically have to like pull against to tie you know there was a good chance that maybe dna or skin cells had gotten underneath the crevices of the shoelaces and had survived all this time so it was the thought process was what you look at is what is the best possible items to test for evidence the slip was there um I don't know if they actually had her shoes at that time that had been recovered, but it's possible that they did. And they did have the laces and they had a pantyhose that um, was found at the same time that she, her body was discovered. The pantyhose was kind of floating in the water. So I think that would be the least likely that and the shoes would be the two least likely to have any DNA on them because the shoes would have been out there in the surf. So really would be difficult to get DNA off of those. The pantyhose floating in the water, you know, the salt water would have destroyed the possibility of any DNA. So with the slip, I think it just depends on whether or not they thought that the that seawater had saturated the slip and so it wouldn't have had any DNA. I don't know if they did any preliminary tests to see because obviously Brenda's Jones's DNA should be on the slip. 
So if preliminary tests were done to see if there was any DNA on the slip, because until you actually do DNA testing, you wouldn't notice the difference between Brenda Jones's DNA or anybody else's DNA. And so I'm not real sure um, if they have plans to go back and take a look at that slip to see if they can get a better profile. Um, it's expensive. So for yeah. small, small communities to, um, to get that. So, um, but I know there are grants and, and different things out there that could be applied for to look for DNA evidence on this type of old cold case. So my hope is that they're taking a look at that. Is there a possibility of, of looking again at the slip and sending that in? Especially now that you already have, you already know that there was something, something of value you just can't get where you need to go. Right. I mean, and I guess, you know, in some ways you would think that that could be a signature. Also, you know, putting the slip in her mouth post mortem, you know. Um yeah, it's kind of a strange strange thing to do. Right. It's not anything that because it's not like he did it to keep her quiet. Right. You know, I think it's one of the things that sticks out in my mind with that. It was definitely something that satisfied him to some degree, right? To, for some something, reason, yeah. You know? Um, it's not something that we see, as far as we know, it's not something that we see in Colette Wilson's case, who was killed earlier. So, and then we do have some cases that fall after Brenda Jones, and from what the police have released, I don't see anything that's that's in those cases, but I think it's an important factor, very important factor. Right. I know, yeah, I was thinking the same thing. You, I don't think we hear it in anybody else, any other victims. And, you know, unfortunately with Colette Wilson, Gloria Gonzalez, you know, there's so much decomposition of these bodies and the uh, remains being, you know, spread out by predators and that kind of thing. It, you may not, even if it had been used in those cases, you may not have seen it. Brenda Jones's body was discovered from what the reports are saying, pretty much within hours of her being killed, that, um, that she had not been in that bay for a huge amount of time. Right. Well, we knew, I mean, we know it could have only been about a day. So, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, I, I can, uh... well, yeah, I mean, on the, on the first, um, so she's, she's getting off the bus, I believe around 4 PM. Yeah. And, um, you're talking about them working the next morning, the next morning. Yeah. Wow. So, so you're talking less than 24 hours right. before her body's discovered. So, Right. And I know one thing that we were just thinking about and kind of just looking at through our research was when were there other criminal activities going on in this area at that time that could be relevant to these cases? Well, I, I've started looking at are there other sexual assaults in that in on Galveston Island in these areas? that could give us some possibility of some answers. And because there's this, I guess it's almost like myth out there 
that Galveston Island was that safe, you don't lock your door type of town where there was no crime going on whatsoever. But in reality, there was robbing and mugging and sexual assaults that went on. When I did the research, I found that there were several sexual assaults in the years prior. In On January 21st, 1968, you have a 21-year-old woman working in her office um, in the Stewart uh, Beach subdivision where a man broke in, raped her at gunpoint, dragged her in the back room, beat her severely, took her car keys, and drove off. And then in May 28th of 1968, you have a woman who's visiting her sister. She's staying at a hotel on Church Street. She woke up to a man hitting her. She began to scream. He choked her with one hand while with the other hand over her mouth. He told her that if she did not scream, he wouldn't kill her. He told her, don't look at me. I have six kids. He placed a pillowcase over her head and raped her and then left. On November 18, 1969, a woman woke up in the middle of the night to a man getting into her bed. The man told her that if she made a sound, he would kill her, and he would hurt her 13-year-old daughter who was asleep in the next room. The man placed a large knife against the woman's throat and raped her. He then tied a pillowcase around her throat and strangled her. He left, leaving her alive. On December 27, 1969, James Green picked up two 14-year-old girls walking home at 4 p.m. The girls got into his car because one of the girls knew the man. He offered the girls a soft drink. It was mixed with something. They noticed themselves getting kind of sleepy and tired. He drove them to a hotel in Beaumont, Texas, repeatedly raped both of them before putting them back in this car and driving them back to Galveston and dropping them off. In 1971, shortly before Brenda Jones was abducted, there was a woman who was sunbathing on a secluded beach in Galveston when a man um, dragged her to his car, sexually assaulted her, and then kicked her back out of his car and drove off. So it wasn't this safe, idealistic beach community where nothing could happen. Right. It sounds like there was a, a lot of things going on in those years prior to 1971 and uh, Brenda being abducted. Well, and what I find very interesting is the guy who uh, sexually assaulted the woman and told her he had six kids. I mean, what do you think about that? I think it's sort of a strange thing to say I mean why give the extra information I guess is how I would look at it but I think you know just discussing it with you it's it's another way of putting that fear and like you know I have more to lose your life isn't worth it so you know I will kill you essentially is what he's saying um because he has something to go home to right you know so and I think uh, that you always have to be aware that Somebody who will do this possibly has done things before and escalated to this level. Right. I know that, you know, in talking with you as well, you had mentioned, you know, like raping could just feed that need of the criminal behavior that they're feeling inside. So it can definitely escalate into 
um, murder, even if the first one's accidental, then it kind of gives them that taste for it. So, <clears throat> yeah, and I think you get to a point possibly when you have such a fear that if they catch me, you know, they're going to find out about all this other stuff. And so, you don't you get to the point where you don't leave a live victim. Right. Right. I think we're going to jump ahead a little bit here. There are other victims in Galveston Island. Rhonda Johnson and um, Sharon Shaw go missing in August of 1971. And we're going to skip them for right now because there's so much about them that we really need to delve into a whole episode for them. But we want to talk about Allison Craven. And the reason that we want to talk about Allison Craven is that I think she's important, um, even though she's not on Galveston Island, she's important um, to this area. She's part of that area of the Texas killing fields. And so we want to talk a little bit about her. Allison Craven is north um, a little bit from Galveston, right outside of the Houston area, um, in the area that's known as um, Almeda, which is close to Pasadena and close to Pearland as well. It depends on what direction you're going in. So um, what background do you have, Gretchen, for us today on Allison? Well, Allison Craven, on um, November 9th, 1971, Allison Craven's mother leaves the apartment near the Alameda Mall to run errands. And she returns about an hour later and discovers that Allison is not home. She notices that Allison's purse is in the living room and the contents of the purse are strewn out all over the living room. She calls the police and says her daughter is missing um, and a search ensues for her daughter and she is not found. It isn't until January of 1972 that remains are found in a field adjacent to the apartment complex where they found find a few bit of bones and then they can't identify those bones because there's so few of them and then on february 29th in a field about five miles away from where the first set of bones were found, a boy attempting to shortcut across the field on his way to school stumbles across remains and a pair of gold rimmed glasses. And at this time, he's in Pearland, Texas. So the field is in Pearland. Later, the glasses were taken to the to um, Allison Craven's optometrist because they do suspect that these bones belong to Allison Craven. And the optometrist identifies the glasses as hers. But the strange thing about this is the location of these two sets of remains and how they managed to put the first set of remains that were near her apartment and then these remains that are five miles away together to say that both sets of remains are, are Allison. Right, and I think that's um, something that is a little bit strange and we question is, where the larger amount, the second set of remains um, are found, is that because from the first location that the bones were found months prior, did the, the killer come back and move her? How do the remains end up in such a spread out 
area if you're going to say that it's, you know, um, animal activity? I, my guess is that this is not animal activity. I would think that she originally was placed in the field in, um, near her apartment and then that somebody came back and removed her remains and took her to the Pearland uh, field and dumped off her remains. But it's it's very confusing because again, this is one of those that we have applied for some open records on. We haven't received them yet, but we're hoping that we'll have more answers. They do say dismembered um, remains in the newspaper, which leads you to believe <clears throat> that maybe at the time of her death, somebody actually dismembered her and placed her in two different locations. But I think it's more than likely that um, the killer, being worried that her remains would be found so close to where she lived, went back and removed them and took her to the other field. Right. And I think when I read dismembered, to me that seems like somebody is, or the killer has done that himself just by the wording because they aren't using animal activity when they're saying that um but you know five miles when we're talking about this i'm like five miles isn't that far how come they didn't expand that search at the time that they found the original set of bones because it is so close to where she was living i think when you look at this <clears throat> five miles doesn't seem that far if you're talking about just like five miles down the road. But when you're talking about a search area that's five miles, what you're talking about is five square miles. And when you talk about five square miles, that's actually a very large search area. And it would be incredibly difficult to search five square miles, you know, on five, foot. Well, yeah, to detail I mean, search five square right. miles, you know, in, in kind of like put out searchers in a, and say we're going to search five square miles from Allison's apartment, five square miles in all directions. That's 3,200 acres. Right. So that's if you break that down, like visually, how can you break that down into sort of that layman's term? Like, how do we... The best that I can do for you is if you think of a football field and searching a football field, right? So if you think you had to have people in a football field who would search a football field, a football field is, is doable to search, right? Right. But five square miles are 2,400 football fields. Wow. That gives you kind of an and, idea. And it's, you know trees and tall grasses and just you know it's not easy to just navigate through there i mean you're really having to search under brush and you know different things like that so. yeah and that's only if you search open fields if you're searching back alleys and um yeah. dumpsters and everywhere possible i think five square miles is is a huge search area so how, I mean, how come they wouldn't use, like, cadaver dogs or, you know, other resources well, I think to help that's a, with that? I think that's a great question about cadaver dogs because, you know, nowadays you see that a lot where if you find partial remains or, you know, even if you have somebody who goes missing, you see them use search dogs. 
Um, but in 1971, search dogs actually weren't something that was happening. We didn't even see the first search dog training until 1970. And can you imagine in 1971 when they find those remains, when a somebody calls up and says to the um, law enforcement, hey, I've I've got uh, cadaver dogs that I can help you out with. Can you imagine what the law enforcement would have said to them? <laughs> They'd probably think that, you know, you're full of shit and this is, you know, crackpot science, right? Yeah. I mean, what? <laughs> I think they would kind of tell you that they'll... Uh, They'll put you on hold and let you know when they start to talk to the psychics. If right. they're going to bring you in and you and Fido in to start searching for a field. You know, nowadays it's it's common. pretty common. Right. But back then, you know. They'd be like, oh my gosh, can you believe this? Like, a dog, I think a dog can come in here, you know, <laughs> right? I mean, because you just didn't have that. They didn't have that resource. And then still in looking at, you know, as you ask that question, looking at five five square miles again, even if they did have that research where five square miles would be too large of a search area for search for cadaver dogs too. Right. So, yeah. Cause I know I asked you, I was like, um, could you just not take one of those bones in the first, you know, the first ones that were found, have a dog sniff it and go after it. And you're looking at me like, well, only if they have a trail, you know, what if the body was moved to the second location and they lose the trail from a car or, you know, anything like that. So it, I mean, it's still questionable. <laughs> We're going over it, right? Like how accurate can it be? Or if they can follow that trail or can they just pick up that scent and then, you know, take you five miles to the rest of the bones? I mean, just wasn't an option. At well, that time. and I think, you know, nowadays when she, if she had gone missing currently from that apartment, I think they would have brought in search dogs now and we probably would have found her body or her body probably would have been found early, early on. And my guess is it would have been in that field that is adjacent to her apartments. Right. And, and you think that's the first location. It, like you think almost like she was just drug out there, whatever happened might've happened right there. And then the body was moved at, a later time with the very little bit of information that we have but that it, is the best guess that i have and well and they would have to have been moved before any attention was ever even brought to the fact that they were there yes you know i i find that part odd it's it's one of the things in this case that makes things very difficult because unless, unless well well Unless the, they were dismembered and he drops the majority of this off here and brings the other parts back at a later time. I don't know. It's just, it's just weird. What we, can, what we can say for sure is that where her remains are found five miles away from her apartment complex, that animal activity didn't take those remains and drag them back to a field near her apartment complex. Right. right. You know, um, they're not going to go five miles. And then the idea that they would go five miles in a direction that would lead them right outside of, of right. Like backtracking back to, yeah, that's mm -hmm. not, that's not something that we would see with animal activity, you know, and, right. and definitely we have animal activity in these areas. You have coyotes and 
dogs and other animals, wild boars, you know, any number of things, you know, could disturb a, uh, a body. But we know that they didn't take them from the field that's five miles away and drag them back to a field that's adjacent to her apartment complex. Right. So, um, but again, without the open records, which we do hope that we'll be revisiting this case at another time, we don't have any answers. What we do have is answers to somebody who killed Allison. Right. And, and just a couple points before we move on to um, that person of interest is we don't know if law enforcement treated her as a runaway at that point because so many missing girls were so many missing so many girls were going missing already up to that point we don't know that and she did go missing from the laundry room in the apartment complex which we're thinking maybe her belongings from her purse might have been her looking for change to go get a soda from the laundry room uh, I know just in the apartments that I've stayed at there usually is a soda machine down there so you know, just to kind of put that little bit of information out there, too. Right. As far as we know, um, because we have a suspect who does make a confession and say that he abducted her out of the laundry room, mm -hmm. we, as far as we know, she was not abducted out of her actual apartment. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and the best that we can do is base that off of the confession by Henry Doyle Shufflin. And so I think we'll get into him. So what happens is in May of 1972, you have several sheriff departments and police departments kind of working together, thinking that there's a possibility that these cases are connected, that you have the cases that we covered earlier, Colette Wilson, Brenda Jones, a case that we will cover later, which is Rhonda Johnson and Sharon Shaw, um, and then Gloria Gonzalez. And then you have Allison Craven who goes missing. Police are thinking that there is a possibility that these cases are all connected. Right. And so because of that, you have Sheriff Kearns, who is the Houston Sheriff, um, Harris County Sheriff, starts to interview several different suspects that he has. Um, he does look in that um, realm of, you know, people who are exposers, um, people who have sexually assaulted people. And he does make two different contacts with suspects, uh, which they rule out. And then we have very little background information to figure out why he lands on making contact with Harry Doyle Shufflin Jr., who's age 22. It, it's Henry, Henry Doyle. Oh, is it Henry Doyle? Yes. Sorry about that. Oh, sorry. Henry Doyle. Because we have a Harry too. So you I got it confused <laughs> with another suspect. Henry Doyle Shufflin Jr., age 22. They bring him in for questioning. And during an oral, oral interview, Henry confesses to abducting Allison Craven out of the laundry room and murdering her. Right. And then um, they have this confession. They get... Henry, a court-appointed lawyer who comes down, talks to Henry, and Henry says, I'm done answering questions. I, I'm frightened. You're pressuring me. I've been under the care of a psychiatrist for several months, and I don't feel like I can answer any more questions. And he does not answer any more questions. 
And then in October of 1973, he pleads guilty to murder with malice and was sentenced to 25 years in prison. And he serves part of his sentence. Um, I'm not 100% sure how many years, but I think he serves roughly about 12 years and then is released from prison. And then Doyle dies, or Henry Doyle Shufflin dies in 2008 and so we really don't have a whole lot of answers with him right and you know the one thing that we had talked about too and i asked him like he dies in 2008 and he's not linked up or does anything else that we know of after he's released right so i mean no after he's released um he pretty much leads a a quiet life right and i just don't Unless, you know, ref he was reformed in prison, and it just seems like such a, you know, horrific crime to commit, and you'd never have that need to do it again, I guess, to me. And when you say, you know, he pled guilty to murder with malice, some of our listeners may not know what the malice would mean in that, so do you want to kind of touch on what that is? I think murder with malice would be like your first degree murder. Like, mm -hmm. you know, he had a chance to like think about it and kind of did a little bit of planning with it. And, uh, and so that would be, you know, what that essentially would be. Mm -hmm. Like he did it on purpose. He did it with a plan. Um, with it wasn't, yeah, with intention. Mm -hmm. okay. Um, well, you know, for me, what's interesting about him is if his confession is true, that he's not linked to anybody else earlier either. Right. I mean, I know he's only 22 years old, but you have several cases that happened in um, 1971. And so to not link him to any earlier homicides either. Um, and, and maybe law enforcement, I just, I mean, maybe he just didn't, you know, because they were talking and, you, you know, you would think with her being, you know, what, six on the list? At this time, none of the other girls were brought up. You know, like, they never questioned him about anyone else. You know? Well, I think once he admits to Allison Craven and they get him a lawyer, he pretty much shuts down. Mm -hmm. You know, he doesn't doesn't give them any more follow-up information. Um, and so that, I kind of think, leads us to the point of, you know, still trying to delve more into him and his criminal activity and see if we can update you at a later time. But I think that he is an important person about how this all comes about, how his confession comes about. Um, he does appeal at one point and I have been able to get those records. And when he appeals, he does not appeal on the grounds of saying that police, um, tricked him into a false confession or that they um interrogated him or yeah that they, they bullied him basically they, they don't he doesn't say anything like that in his appeal now that can be for several different reasons it may be that his lawyers told him that wasn't good grounds for an appeal or didn't have that to prove or anything like that but it does not come up when you read the transcripts from that appeal that are online, what he appeals to is basically saying that he was under the impression 
that by pleading guilty, that the judge would write him a letter and that that letter would be to the parole board and would get him out on an early release. And that, that is the grounds that he uses for an appeal, which was denied. But um, there are a few things in there that they do say is that judges shouldn't have anything to do with the um, process of plea bargaining, you know, those types of things. But um, he doesn't say, it doesn't say in that, I didn't do it, they held a gun to my head, they forced me to make this confession. None of that actually comes out. Right. And from my perspective, I think at this point, I think we probably need to look at him as a pretty good indication that he did kill Allison Craven, but we'll delve more into him. All right, that sounds good. I think we're going to finish up for today. Do you have anything else to add? I think that's a lot of information for people (laughs) people to listen to. I think um, we are uh, excited to be doing our next episode for you, which will be on Rhonda Johnson and Sharon Shaw, who disappear in August of 1971. So that'll be next. Next, episode four. Well, thanks for joining us today. And as always, don't forget to uh, visit our Facebook page at Bodies in the Bayous or shoot us an email at bodiesinbayous at hotmail.com with your questions so we can start off answering those. Thank you. Bye.